Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Back Room. I'm Andy Ostroy. I'm announcing that today we are filing a lawsuit against Donald Trump for violating the law as part of his efforts to generate profits for himself, his family, and his company. The complaint demonstrates that Donald Trump falsely inflated his net worth by billions of dollars to unjustly enrich himself and to cheat this system, thereby cheating all of us. He did this with the help of the other defendants, his children, Donald Trump Jr., Ivanka Trump, and Eric Trump, and former Trump Organization CFO Alan Weisselberg and Trump Organization controller Jeffrey McConney. I love that woman. I really do. That was New York State Attorney General Letitia James at her press conference on Wednesday announcing her massive lawsuit against Trump, the Trump Organization, Trump kids, the executives. Uh, a lawsuit which seeks $250 million in penalties and would permanently bar Trump and his three children and the executive team from serving as officers of New York-based companies and prevent him and his company from entering into commercial real estate acquisitions in the state for five years. They can't operate. Um, and here's the key. They're sending, she's sending a criminal referral to the IRS and the U.S. prosecutors in the Southern, Southern District of New York. This is big news. This is huge. Uh, basically, what she's, the allegation is that Donald Trump committed fraud relating to every property he owns. Here she explains the lawsuit. The complaint, which all of you should have a copy, is more than 280 pages long. It includes examples from 23 assets that were grossly and fraudulently inflated. And those inflated values were used on Mr. Trump's statements almost every year. All told, we uncovered more than 200 examples of false and misleading asset valuations that were used on his statements. The pattern of fraud and deception that was used by Mr. Trump and the Trump Organization for their own financial benefit is astounding. Inflating the values of assets by whatever means necessary to increase Mr. Trump's purported net worth. And then that net worth, net worth was used to further enhance his financial standing, intentionally misrepresenting his, financial, his financials to obtain incredible economic benefit. It was a scheme that by its very nature became more profitable over time. And it is all in stark violation of the law. And she gives a specific example of this alleged fraud. Another deceptive strategy they employed was to use objectively false numbers to calculate property values. Take Mr. Trump's triplex. You know, the triplex apartment in Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue. Mr. Trump represented that his apartment spanned more than 30,000 square feet, which was the basis for valuing the apartment. In reality, the apartment had an area of less than 11,000 square feet something that Mr. Trump was well aware of. And based on that inflated square footage, the value of the apartment in 2015 and 2016 was $327 million. To this date, no apartment in New York City has ever sold for close to that amount. Tripling the size of the apartment for purposes of the valuation was intentional and deliberate fraud. Not an honest mistake. And she reminds us of something very, very important. This conduct can not be brushed aside and dismissed as some sort of good faith mistake. Um, the statements um, of financial condition were greatly exaggerated, grossly inflated, objectively false, and therefore fraudulent and illegal. And as a result of that, we are seeking relief. And he and Mr. Trump, the Trump Organization, his family, they should all be held accountable. And that is the purpose of this litigation that we are filing today, in addition to referring the criminal conduct to the Southern District of New York, as well as the IRS. No one, my friend, is above the law. And lastly, she puts a 
very profound poetic punctuation on all of this. Claiming you have money that you do not have does not amount to the art of the deal. It's the art of the steal. I mean, I think I cried through this presser. I mean, I really did because I don't know about you guys, but it does feel like the walls are truly closing in all around Donald Trump. That finally between, you know, the J6 investigation and the the grand jury investigation in Georgia and what's happening in New York with Tisha James, um, uh, the civil suits with him being accused of rape. I mean, it's just... It, it's going to be impossible for him to to uh, adequately defend all of this, especially with the shitty lawyers he has. Like, with being under investigation in six different uh, jurisdictions for six different crimes and misdemeanors, the only way you can survive something like that is if you have, like, the dream team, like OJ back in, whatever, 95, whatever. Um, he has the nightmare team. Like... You know, so uh, it does feel like something's really changing here. But what she said about no one, my friend, is above the law, I think we're starting to really see that light at the end of the tunnel. You guys, what do you guys think? Maddie, Jen? Yes. The rule of law is prevailing, finally. Mm -hmm. No, it's clear that that something... Well, here's the thing. I I don't think he's going to get nailed everywhere, right? But something's going to drop. It's either going to be Georgia or it's going to be New York, but he's not going to escape all of this. And maybe at the end of the day, Tish James is the hero. Maybe it's those financial documents, just like Al Capone, like the numbers don't lie. That's what, that's why financial crimes, insurance, banking, you know, uh, business fraud, things like that are so easy to prosecute because it's a piece of paper where you sign it and say, this is accurate. And if you commit fraud and you've signed to it, that's it. There's no escape, tax evasion. There's no there's no avoiding prosecution with that. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see what Bragg does essentially in Manhattan because she's referred this to Bragg and he's claiming that he's still under invest that Trump is still under investigation, but that remains to be seen because uh, if those are the only people that can actually in New York bring justice and she can sue him, but that's not not enough. No, but, you know, one could easily surmise that there's so much evidence packed into this civil suit now that the cooperation between her and Bragg in the, in the Manhattan DA's office has an injection of new blood. Yeah. I mean, the one thing, though, that does stand out in my mind is something Rick Wilson said on last week, and that people are even even possibly Bragg's office is kind of afraid to take him down and... Uh, not because they're necessarily physically afraid, but because of the backlash, it does seem like that's still an issue. It's yes, it's it's clearly an issue. Um, and these people who are tasked with defending the rule of law are eventually going to have to decide between that and saving our democracy. Interesting. Also, what's come out uh, this week is that you know prosecuting Trump requires intent, right? So. What we're learning through this New York lawsuit is that Trump was advised by people like Weisselberg, like these numbers are wrong. And then he went ahead and submitted these docs anyway. So that proves intent. So I I think, you know, I I don't think Tish James is grandstanding. I think she she's built an incredibly powerful, detailed, perhaps ironclad case against him. And if in there is massive criminality, then whether it's Bragg, SDNY, or both, he's fucked. And on top of that, his public pronouncements over time on social media that he knows more about taxes than anybody in the world uh, doesn't really help him. Right. And and also to say, well, Bill Barr came out this week, former attorney general and continued Trump ass licker, Bill Barr. So we're like, you know, the children, they're talking about the children. That's not fair. Like, you know, they didn't know their involvement. But Donald Trump literally in 2016 said, Don Jr. and Eric will be running Trump Org and they will be doing it professionally. A couple other things that happened this week that were monumental. Uh, Thursday night, uh, I'm sorry, Wednesday night, there was a appeals court ruling 
the Department of Justice appealed to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, and they came back with a ruling. Uh, a three-judge uh, three panel, two of whom were Trump appointees. Uh, they rejected Trump's claims that the documents that were taken by the FBI at, at the Mar-a-Lago raid uh, had been declassified. Um, it was a massive rep repudiation of the decision by highly incompetent Judge Aileen Cannon, also a Trump appointee. And the court agreed with the Department of Justice that uh, that Cannon and the lower court uh, erred in this, its decision to have a special master, which Trump wanted. By the way, if you look up in the dictionary, careful what you wish for, you literally see Trump asking for a special master. What a fucking backfire that was, huh? The most delicious thing of all. Um, and so the, the, the uh, Court of Appeals said, and I quote, Plaintiff has not even attempted to show that he had a need to know the information contained in the classified documents, nor has he established that the current administration has waived that requirement for these documents. This was a stunning rebuke of Trump's frivolous attempts to use and abuse the ju judicial system uh, for political purposes and to stall and, and ultimately undermine the process of holding him accountable, uh, which has always been his strategy. But between that and between the next thing that happened this week, um, oh, by the way, so, so the Court of Repeals, the, the, the big takeaway is that they, they ruled that the uh, Justice Department can resume its review into the roughly 100 stolen classified documents. Uh, they also ruled that Trump's lawyers and the special master can't see these documents. Uh, and all of this means that Trump is no longer able to slow down or delay this investigation. So it proceeds uh, as planned, and it's an investigation which... Um, could lead to indictment. So the special master, which is what Donald Trump wanted, he wanted this special master, and now it's backfiring like crazy. In essence, Judge uh, Deary ruled this week, uh, and I'm going to power phrase, but this is basically what he said. Trump said, I declassified those documents. Deary said, well, then prove it. No, that's fine, but then it's a cut and dry case. Why, says Trump? Because the government markings on them is all I have, and they're clearly classified, and I'm going to rule on that. So if you have something that, that's, that contrasts that, contradicts that, show it to me. If not, that's what I rule on, because I have nothing else. And then he said, quote, this is a literal quote, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You cannot make claims. The other thing he did, uh, I believe yesterday, is he came out and also basically said, put up or shut up on Trump's frivolous claims that the FBI planted the evidence. He's still, which is bizarre because he was on Sean Hannity this week, and he's still, even after he's basically said, I took the documents, I declassified them, I kept them at Mar-a-Lago, but they were planted by the FBI, which both of those things make absolutely no sense. But he's 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 putting forth both of those uh, uh, contentions, and you can't have both. So the the special master, uh, Judge Deary, said you have basically a week to come back here and show evidence that those documents were planted, or sh just shut the fuck up. And so people are talking to him now the way nobody else has. This special master is the one person, and I think probably besides uh, Melania, who has told him to shut the fuck up. And I think it's probably driving him nuts. So the most important thing of all of this is that we're now starting to see the powers that be tell Trump. It doesn't, it doesn't matter whether the documents were classified or declassified. Uh, none of it belongs to you. It belongs to the American people, the U.S. government. Uh, and if you took them, that's that's theft and it's a crime and you're going to be prosecuted. And if you have a, evidence that exonerates you, anything that's exculpatory that you want to put on the table, by all means, bring it. But if you don't have it, what you say on Sean Hannity, and Sean Hannity, if you're listening, you can have this fucker on, on your show a thousand times. It's not going to change the outcome. What he spew, the bullshit he spews on your show doesn't matter. And we saw that this week. If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified, even by thinking about it, because you're sending it to Mar-a-Lago or to wherever you're sending it. And there doesn't have to be a process. There can be a process, but there doesn't have to be.
I think that says it all. Yeah, like, I, I want to, can you, if, let's, let's say he changed his mind. He was like, you know what, I, 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 I think I want to classify them again. Is, can he just think that, too? Can he think classification? Can Joe Biden just look at something and go, uh, in his head? We don't hear it. Nobody sees it. It's never documented anywhere. There's no process. It's just Joe Biden thinks something is classified, therefore it is. I mean, that's the way it goes in the Trump administration. It works that way. Yeah, so what the clip we just played where Trump is on Hannity. And by the way, if you guys haven't had a chance to see a clip of Hannity interviewing Ted Koppel, please do it. You can go to my, it's the pinned tweet on my Twitter uh, if you are lazy and you just want to go right there. Um, uh, it is unbelievable because Ted Koppel just mashes Sean Hannity to the ground um, and just demonstrates what what a sniveling sycophantic liar he is but um uh it's unbelievable that somebody like trump would go on tv and say the stuff he does which like i said before must drive his lawyers crazy because now they've got to go into a court and either lie to back up all that shit or they have to you know contradict their own client which they're not going to do they seem to ignore whatever he says because they haven't made any of the claims that he's made on social media or on Sean Hannity. And his high-priced $3 million lawyer that he had to prepay uh, said nothing at the hearing in Brooklyn. That, so he got uh, he got his money's worth. Yeah. I mean, again, when you're in the kind of position Trump is in right now where from a, a civil, criminal, espionage investigation standpoint, you need the best lawyers in the world. And basically, this is my assessment of his lawyers. If if an attorney working at Jacoby and Myers had to go to traffic court to fight a parking ticket, they wouldn't hire Donald Trump's lawyers. Okay, with that, let's get to our guest. He is Phineas, singer-songwriter, record producer, and sometimes actor. He's written and produced music for various artists, including and especially his awesome sister, Billie Eilish. He's won eight Grammy Awards and has a total of about 13 Grammy nominations. Phineas, welcome into the back room. Hi, Andy. Thanks so much for having me. So, Phineas, it's a really cool name, right? I looked it up. It's ancient <laughs> Irish. It means oracle, right? Which means such a priestess of ancient Greece. That's, that's pretty heavy-duty stuff. Uh, and your full name is Phineas Baird O'Connell. That's a cool name. I wish I had a name like that. But your, sis name. your sister's full name is Billie Eilish Pirate Baird O'Connell. How come you didn't get a cool middle name like Pirate? Or like Viking. How come your middle name isn't Viking or something like that? Really quick, what does Andy mean? Is there an <laughs> etymology on Andy? Andy means uh, rapidly aging middle-aged white guy who's trying to find out who the hell he is and what the meaning of life is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can look that up. It's um, wow, that's that's a great urban dictionary uh, definition of the name Andy. Um, so the pirate etymology there uh, for Billy was... I think that my folks liked the sound of Billy Pirate, and and um, I was probably like three and a half when she was in the womb, and and I'm sure as a child I was like in my swashbuckling phase. Like I think I probably thought treasure and skulls and crossbones were like the coolest thing. So I think maybe that that was a little influential. But yeah, they liked Billy Pirate, and then I think they got kind of talked out of it. So Billy Eilish fared. I think it's Billie Eilish O'Connell is her legal middle name. Mm -hmm. I could be wrong, but I think mm -hmm. it's Billie Eilish O'Connell. And then they kind of do that, like, you know, the, the long form, um, you killed my father, prepare to die, <laughs> a, a princess bride thing. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, and, and swashbuckler. I like the sound of that. I, Phineas Baird <laughs> swashbuckler O'Connell. Think about it. <laughs> and then thank me if you, end up, if you end up using it. So you mentioned yeah, 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 you, the, you mentioned the little three and a half year old Phineas. Uh, tell me about little Phineas. Were you like one of those five year old kids who spent like fifteen hours a day on the piano, or were you out getting dirty playing football? Um, I was definitely like a phase child. I feel like I was, you know, like deeply into you know construction equipment, as I know a lot of little kids are. And my dad would take me to like whatever local build was happening you know you just like there'd be like an apartment complex being built somewhere on the east side we'd sit and i'd stare at it for hours because it was exciting to me as a kid mm -hmm. um and then yeah i was really into pirates really into cowboys 
Um, and then, and then, yeah, really into music. Um, I was really into music as a very little kid, as like a three and a half to to five year old, and then I got sort of re obsessed with it at the age of eleven, and that was really the 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 turning point from which I never returned. So that was like the that, like at eleven was the time when you sort of like something clicked in your head, and you were like, hey, I not only like this music thing, but I think I might actually have some serious talent here. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know that I had any serious talent, but I certainly loved it. And I, and I definitely, um, thought that really when I was turning 11, uh, I guess like turning 12, 11, turning 12, I went and saw, um, green day with a friend of mine. And I just thought like, that is the job like that. Like I couldn't really believe that that was like their work was Mm -hmm. and it was like the first live show I'd ever seen of that magnitude and it was such a treat um and yeah i just was like well i have to do that and i I think that meaning just sort of making music for a living i don't think i thought as lofty as like i'll i have to be in one of the biggest rock bands in the world that wasn't the the goal but i definitely was like wanted to make music professionally Mm -hmm. but did you did you have a sense of you know, I mean, like most of us, we sing in the shower and it makes us feel good. But yeah. when we're singing, we're like, man, yeah. man, I really suck. Like, did you have a sense that you didn't suck, that you were actually really good? You had something special at that age? Um, I, yeah, I mean, I maybe am guilty. And I hope your your uh, daughter is, too, of like having parents that like, like give me too much self-confidence, you know, <laughs> like my my parents you know, never like never word for word, like you have the best voice in the world or something like that. But they just never made me question that I had a nice voice. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. they were just like, you have a beautiful voice. So, you know, I hope that I can do that for my kids um, one day. And I remember like one time, this is kind of a funny tangent, but like this is a couple years later. I was like 12 or 13 and I met a kid who had like an incredible voice, <laughs> like really just just unbelievable. This kid, Adrian Turner. And he would sing, and it was just like unbelievable. And I remember like singing along to whatever he was trying to sing to. And another kid gave me a kind of a like, shut up and let him sing. Like he sounds incredible. So I again like sort of that that blind confidence of a child with <laughs> loving, nurturing parents um, made me think that I I could sing. But I always loved singing, and there was a lot of music in the house. We were always singing along to stuff, and my my folks play a little bit of piano, a little bit of guitar. Um, so there was always music on and, and music um, in the house. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen your uh, your your documentary, uh, The World's a Little, you and Billy, uh, The World's a Little Blurry, came out around the same time that uh, my documentary about my late wife, Adrienne Shelley, came right. out last uh, last winter, or like December around then. Right. And, um and I remember watching that documentary and thinking, you know, because uh, having gone through the process and you know, putting your guts on the table and just letting people in in a very honest, genuine way, it's not an easy thing to do. And I experienced that. But I was m- really impressed with, and I think I even texted you on, on this and said, like, your parents were just amazing. Like, you know, I didn't have that kind of parental experience. I, I, um, uh, I had maybe a little bit of the opposite of that, you know, uh, whatever the opposite of is you're amazing and you can do a- anything in this world. I had the opposite of that. Uh, we'll, we'll end it there. But um, I was very impressed. And it's, it's, you know, hearing you talk about your parents and how they, you know, not just like, like how they nurtured you so much and gave you the confidence. Um, but it also reminds me of, a, of, a, uh, of something funny where like when you, if you watch American Idol, you know, and you always see like the kids that come up and sometimes they're, they're just awful. And, and yeah. back in, back in the day, Simon Cowell would be like, <clears throat> who told you you can sing? And the yeah, kid would be like, well, yeah, my, my parents told me I'm great. And yeah. he's like, well, you're not, you know, yeah. <laughs> get off our stage. But <laughs> so parents could like, you know, either really nurture someone and, and put them on the right path, or they could just fill their heads with all kinds of nonsense about you have talent when you really don't. But, uh, your parents are very cool. And, and, uh, um, you know, and, and you guys, uh, not only I think had had that nurturing artistically, but uh, I think they helped shape you very well. Clearly, as as an observer, you know both you and Billy as people in how you approach the the universe. Um, you know, I could say from personal experience, you are 
you and Billy are, are very kind human beings. Uh, you're generous. Um, I had contacted you um, a couple of years ago, maybe four years ago, whatever, when my daughter was approaching a birthday. And as I said before, her mom was the actor and filmmaker, Adrian Shelley, and she made the film Waitress. Right. And I know you guys are big Broadway yes. musical fans, and the Waitress became yep. a musical on Broadway. Yeah. And I said, if you guys just had five seconds to send her uh, a little happy birthday video, it would rock her world. And you responded, I think, in five minutes and said, hey, I think we can make that happen. And then I think the next day, there was this incredible, maybe minute-long video of you and Billy wishing Sophie a happy birthday. And it is one of the most incredible moments, I think, I've seen her in her life. And it was so incredible just from the sense of... Uh, that you guys did it. I mean, that was so rare. So I think you you clearly are, you seem to be good people. Do you think of yourself as a good, kind, generous person in a world that's crazy? Um, well, I'll, first of all, thanks for all the, the kind words about that. And um, your daughter's a sweetheart. I hope she's doing well. Um, you know, listen, I don't, I don't bother thinking of myself as a good person, but um, you know, when I do good, I feel good. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, I try to, I try to make people feel the way that I would want to feel. And, um, yeah, it makes me, it makes me feel better. It's really like the, the transitive properties of it. It, it really, yeah. If I can do something for somebody else that is meaningful, you know, especially like the thing you're asking, you're, you're, you're talking about that you were asking was so easy for us to do. It's like when you when you realize that something so minor for you is going to be meaningful for somebody else. It's right. like there like there's like you know there's no real excuse not to. And you know to be honest like I feel like um you know I th there are days where I would be tempted to sit and make those videos for people that I've never met all day, mm -hmm. you know. And mm -hmm. I I wish I had the infinite time to make everybody feel that way mm -hmm. um well that so, puts you that you know, puts you in a minority and that, but that's what makes i that's what i think makes makes you special in that regard um because we don't get a lot of that uh today um mm -hmm. you have a new album out um that came out last spring uh well that's actually almost a year already wow crazy um but you're you're writing you know my daughter and i have a house upstate new york and and i've so over the years i've spent many many hours driving with my daughter and being forced to listen uh -huh. to her playlists and i i just gotta be honest like most of what she listens to makes my ears hurt honestly it just literally it's like someone jabbing an ice pick in my ear except when she puts you on and billy and and um uh lana del rey and, and, and frank ocean and some others that i really you know like i put i put you uh, as a singer songwriter, cool dad alert. Mentioning mentioning cool artists right here. Andy. Yeah, but I also uh, took her to see um, Harry the other night, which was an experience too. I think I was I was I was like me and six other guys over fifty or sixty in in the in Madison Square Garden. I went into the men's room. There was no men in the men's room. I had the men's room at <laughs> Madison Square Gar Square Garden all to myself, which was crazy. But um, your your songs like "Love Is Pain" and and what they'll say about us are just. You know, it, it's ageless in the sense that someone like me, who's going to be 63 next year, who considers myself somewhat of a music snob, like, I love what you do. And uh, so there's uh, never an issue when she puts you on, because I've already requested it probably before she gets a chance to uh -huh. do it. But I want to ask you about your songwriting process. Uh, also, Everybody Dies that you wrote with, with uh, Billy is just incredible Billy. song. You know, you, you, we hear all the time about artists and what their process is and like you know elton john and bernie toppin and, and or mccartney gets yesterday in his sleep like i'm fascinated by that how do you you know there's lyrics then there's melody like what is the process for you how do you craft a song and does it come easy to you do you are you neil young that goes in the woods and comes back 10 minutes later with ohio <laughs> i um I try to shake it up. I try to not ascribe to one methodology, but the thing that I've probably done the most, I think I heard John Mayer refer to as uh, what he calls Ouija board songwriting, um, which is sort of um, sitting at, at a 
piano or a guitar or um, something of that nature and playing some chord and singing out loud and making up a melody and a lyric on the spot and kind of seeing what you what you what what comes out of your mouth um, and then kind of molding it like clay from there. Um, but I do kind of like the kind of improvisational starting point of, of I'm going to just without thinking open my mouth and see what comes out while I'm playing something. Um, and that's been the most sort of effective for me. But I'm also very conceptual like or, or very interested in being conceptual, at least in songwriting. So if I have a, a lyric idea I like, I'll, you know, try to expound upon it. And um, yeah, I think that I've now written some large quantity of songs that a lot of which are out and then a lot of which are not good enough to come out. And, uh, you know, after you've written a lot over the years, I think anything that inspires you is the right thing. So I think those are the things that, that I really, um, the, the things I seek out, right? Anything that might, that might um, make something sound new again. I've, I've played a G chord on a guitar so many times that there are days where it, the, the beauty of it is a little lost on mm -hmm. me just because I've played it so many times. So mm -hmm. I try to, I try to re-inspire myself, but um, yeah, I do. I do sort of always shake it up. I feel like it's um, you'd be limiting yourself if you only did it one way. And is it is it different or harder or more or less satisfying when you're writing for yourself versus someone else? Someone like Billy, for example, like where you you have your own sensibility, you have your own musical tastes of what you want to put out right. in the world, and then there's this other monumental person that you're you know like i mean she's your sister so it's a little bit of yeah. a different example than if you wrote for somebody else but like you guys know each other so well but is yeah. the process the same when you're writing something for her or with her than it is just for yourself it's fairly similar i would say that there are there are instances where writing a song alone is easier because there's no time for anything to get lost in translation you don't have to articulate anything um you just sort of go mm -hmm. um and then there are times where yeah a song that i wrote alone took me forever and then i went in to write with billy or with another artist and because of the chemistry there the song was written super you know quickly and easily and also the you know the beauty as a songwriter of of writing with billy or writing with other artists is you know, they're bringing, at the very least, their life experiences to the table that are not my own. And so that's just a wealth of material to mm -hmm. work with. Mm -hmm. And then, and then you know, everybody I work with is a really talented songwriter, too. So we're just kind of, um, you know, playing. Uh, it's a little like playing recreational, you know, like playing catch in your backyard with a mid on like that's the way songwriting feels to me mm -hmm. um with a great songwriter you're just throwing it back and forth um, and, and so as a, like, i'm sorry go ahead or you i was just going to ask songwriter. you as a as a songwriter uh uh is doing a bond a bond james bond movie like an incredible mountain to climb like is that like a pinnacle of like <laughs> Does every, does every musical artist want to someday have a hit Bond song? Now, you guys had No Time to Die, which is a beautiful song. I mean, you're in the company of Tom Jones, Nancy Sinatra, Paul McCartney, Duran Duran, Chris Cornell, like some really amazing artists. Is that like climbing Mount Everest, and when you finally get up there, it's like, wow, we've, we've arrived as, <laughs> as songwriters in a certain way? Um, yeah, I mean, we, I don't know if every artist wants to write a James Bond song, but we sure did. <laughs> um, we wanted to do it so bad. And we had sort of been, you know, uh, thinking about and wishing to write a James Bond song for years. Wow. That's and there are also the, the movies, those movies are, you know, years and years in the making. The, the gap between... Um, Spectre and No Time to Die was supposed to be five years and ended up being seven years or six mm -hmm. years because of COVID. Um, and uh, yeah, so we really wanted to. And we we met with people. Um, we met with the people at MGM and then we got to meet with Barbara Broccoli. And understandably, because of the just 
magnitude of the whole thing, they don't just sort of offer it to you. They, they say very politely, like, we'd love to hear what you come up with. And um, that's what I'd do if I were the producer of Bond 2. Um, but man, sitting down at a piano to write the song you're going to present to them as your attempt at a theme song for James Bond is that was that was a tall order. Um, I remember feeling pretty like stressed about that. I was so I I still wanted to write something worthy of it, and um, it really wasn't until I got that piano. Um, arpeggio that just felt so bond to me mm-hmm. that I, I kind of like sighed with relief. I was like, oh, I know how this goes. Um, and that song, to, to sort of tie in your songwriting question, I feel like James Bond songs, obviously we had to get the lyrics right, but we felt like we could have the best lyrics in the world. And if the melodies weren't evocative enough, then we had missed the mark. So we, I started like all melody. We wrote the chorus melody instrumentally and then the the verse melody and mm. then we worked back for the lyrics because we just knew that you know that was paramount and then also the james bond songs are typically interpolated by score throughout the movie so i was sort of like i, I really want to write a melody that a, a string section is going to play during a during a kiss at the end of the movie um which hans um, very generously did, which is really cool. Yeah, you know, th- I'm just absolutely awed by talent, the kind of talent where someone can say, hey, we want you to write a James Bond song, and then people actually walk away, and then whenever months or whatever, come back with an actual amazing Bond song. Like, that you have that ability, you know, like I, I remember when the Waitress the musical um, was was being developed and I first started hearing Sarah Bareilles' music and I, it just awed me that someone could be approached and said, hey, we need you to write a sound, you know, a score to a Broadway musical. And then you come back with an array of amazing songs that you could just do, you could just do that. Like people like me who aren't musical artists, you have to appreciate how we look at this process that you live every day of your life, which is... We can't understand how somebody could just walk away and do what you do. <laughs> you could just manufacture that kind of awesomeness because someone hired you to do it. Like someone could come to me and say, hey, you know, we'll pay you X dollars to come up with it. <laughs> like it's just not going to happen. And like, the, so when you see people who have that kind of talent so innately that they have the ability to, you know, okay, it's got to be in the chord structure. It's got to have this and the lyrics and the, it has to evoke this and that. And then come back and, and present it. It's just, it's kind of incredible. So I, I you know, it's it's an amazing well, thing that 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 you guys did. Uh, I know we're winding Sarah down. Bareilles, by I'm, way, I'm sorry. Real quick, Sarah Bareilles. Sarah Bareilles is one of my songwriting heroes, and I love her um, music for the uh, for the musical waitress, and I also love her solo albums. But the thing I always tell people to look up because nobody's ever heard it is, and it's on YouTube. It's her. She did a song for, I think, NPR during the election cycle um, before mm-hmm. the 2016 uh, presidential election. And yep. she'd written this song that Leslie Odom Jr. sings mm-hmm. from the perspective of President Barack Obama. And Leslie Odom is the, the also just the best singer mm-hmm. ever. And it's the most astounding song. Like... The fact that she wrote it and not President Obama is shocking. <laughs> like it's beautifully written. So yeah, no, just, it's Sarah Bareilles, the goat. She's really great. The ability to do that uh, on a commission kind of basis, just go off and do it and come back and present <laughs> it, it. It's just unbelievable to me. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit to the 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 the, the, the bigger world outside of music. Um, you know, we met through Twitter. Twitter is an incredible place yeah. if you if you use it right. Uh, it's not been a great place for some other people who haven't figured out how to use it right or they actually get into trouble. But uh, your tweets are, are a great mix of, of humor and righteous indignation. For example, I think earlier this week you tweeted, quote, personally, I think a dog can find a better best friend than a man. I mean, that's, that's pretty profound uh, as it are you a, do- a dog or a cat person, by the way? I love both, but I, I only have a dog. Good answer. Good political answer. 
Um, <laughs> you don't want to uh, turn off your your cat uh, fans. Um, yeah. But then you're also quite prolific in your retweeting of people like you know Rob Reiner and Joe Walsh and David Hogg. You know, on a, a range of issues, important issues, including gun reform and student debt forgiveness, voter registration, Ukraine, Biden. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on, I had mentioned to you uh, offline earlier uh, in the year that I I get annoyed when I hear people say things to celebrities, actors, sports, you know, athletes, like, you know, just shut up and play the game or just shut up and sing. Like, yeah. you know, you guys, not only are you as American as we are and therefore you know, rightfully entitled to your opinions, whether they be about music or politics, but you also have a platform which you can use yeah. to to help shape the thinking in this country. And so it's important to me as I move through this podcast to not just have people in politics, but artists who are important, not so much necessarily in, in you know, uh, illustrating they're thinking through their lyrics or their whatever, but just as as humans, like, you know, Judd Apatow was on here and he talked a lot about politics. He's very political. And so I, what makes you want to do that versus so many other people who are just content to, you know, go in a recording studio, put out a successful album and, and ride around in a Porsche? Um, well, you know, I, I care and I think, to use Twitter as an example, Twitter, I, I love that you call it a good place. I think Twitter is a very dangerous place. Um, and I would, I'm curious because you uh, tweet often. How often do you compose a tweet? How often do you compose a tweet and then stare at your phone or your computer and think, mm, no, and put it in the drafts or delete it? Is mm. that a regular occurrence for you or no? For me? Um, yeah, well, yeah. it depends. If... If it's something that I'm just viscerally, impulsively driven by, I will spend like maybe five read-throughs to make sure. Um, because yeah. in my past, I have gone viral in a very fun, awesome way, and I've gone viral in a not-so-fun, awesome way. And so I've learned from experience, you know, to just be very digil uh, uh, vigilant and diligent in my proofing and editing and and just yeah. giving a once-over uh, because, you know, uh, although I think Twitter is coming out with an edit option soon, but like as of right now, you can't, you, you can delete your tweet, but you can't edit it. So yeah. I, I try to be, you know, uh, I mean, I have a, a specific voice on Twitter. It's not for everyone, but it's, I've, I've gathered a, you know, bunch of followers who are way more total than I ever thought I would get. So it might, whatever it yeah. is I'm doing on Twitter resonates with, with some people. But um, yeah. no, I think you got to look at what you put out there because it can be a very dangerous landscape. Um, yeah. I mean, to talk a little bit about, you know, my sort of political commentary, I guess, for lack of a better word, you know, there are issues I care about that are essentially politicized right i care about um gun reform i care about women's rights i care about climate change um i don't care so much about like the speed limit in a school zone in um a state i don't live in like there are there are politics that are not deeply um interesting to me mm -hmm. and and then there are these things that feel like they're, they're like, how could they not be important to everybody? And I think that that to me is the sort of um, that kind of ends the argument on on you know being quote unquote too political or whatever. It's like I don't view women's rights or gun reform or climate change um, as as political. I view those mm -hmm. as um, you know crises essentially. So the fact that they've been turned into political um, you know, playing cards really upsets me. Um, and I do a lot more retweeting than writing because I, I don't feel that I'm the most educated person to speak on, um, those issues. And I'd rather read something that I find informative and share it than, you know, try to regurgitate it myself. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. We, it's a strange time. Um, it's a strange time to be 
online. And, um, you know, the funny thing, if I'm thinking back to the 2020 election cycle, um, that was that seemed so clear cut to me. But in terms of, you know, posting about it all the time, of course, I would get a lot of flack from the, the followers and fans of mine that disagreed with my political leanings, etc., as we all do. And so I remember thinking, you know, I'm preaching to the choir and am I changing anybody's mind who d- disagrees with me? Mm-hmm. Because if I'm not changing anybody's mind, then who cares, right? If, like, if I'm, if the people that agree with me are like, yeah, amen, and then the other people aren't paying attention, then then I should just delete Twitter off my phone mm-hmm. and not. But can you this. ever really know? I reading, well, this is the thing. I remember reading, I, I looked up some polling that they did that was dividing people, um, voters into um, sort of groups. And they asked voters whether they were swayed by um, essentially like the opinions of celebrities. And um, only 5% said that they were. And I remember somebody being like, well, that's a really low percentage. And I was like, 5% can win an election? Like, are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, like, that's, that's huge. A, I was like, that's like that's a huge percentage of people. Like Mm -hmm. if they're being swayed by, you know, or influenced by influencers, by people they follow, I was like, hell yeah, I'm going to post all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So that was enough to make me, um, want to voice all of these opinions at the cost of, you know, however many, um, people, uh, which I don't really care. I, I, you know, look, if you look at history, everyone from Thomas Paine to Martin Luther King to whoever, you know, when they go out into the town square, they're just speaking from the heart and from the brain and what moves them and what they're passionate about and what angers them. And and maybe a crowd forms and maybe a crowd doesn't. But, you know, I think, I, I think the onus is on all of us to speak out and then hope that people are listening. And, and if they're listening, then we hope that they are being moved uh, into a, a call to action kind of way. And so... You know, I, I think silence is 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 not good, especially uh, today. So, um, I, I think you know when we are able to share our opinions. Uh, I I think if you have that platform, which you know artists like you have, uh, fairly safe to assume people. You know, whether it's five percent, two percent, eight percent, you're gonna you're gonna move the needle. You know, and so I, I personally, I think it's important for you to keep doing that. Um, the last thing I'm going to ask you here, uh, is that we in the back room, we like to get into, uh, we like a window into someone's soul. And so, uh, we always think music is a way to figure out who people are at their core. But since you're a musical artist and you probably would come up with a million great names of, uh, artists, uh, like yourself, uh, I'm going to instead ask you <clears throat> who your top five comedians are. So. Oh, Andy, I lo- I was I was wondering which art form you were going to pull from. I'm so happy you chose comedians. Uh, by the um, by the way, when Paul when Paul Rudd was in here, I asked him who his yeah. top 5 ventriloquists were of all time, and the dude reeled <laughs> off five names within like 30 seconds. It was the most incredibly impressive thing I've ever heard in my life. But go ahead, your top comedians. So, um Listen, I haven't watched every stand-up special in the world. There are comedians that I have never heard of that I'm sure are hilarious. So that being said, um, Patrice O'Neill kills me. Mm-hmm. Mitch Hedberg mm-hmm. kills me. Um, I grew up listening to a lot of Dimitri Martin, so I want to give Dimitri Martin props because as a kid, that was kind of my gateway into comedy. Um I have uh, really loved Tom Segura. Mm-hmm. I think that um, Tig Notaro is brilliant. Mm-hmm. And I've listened to her specials many times. Um, and, um, oh, I want to give a, I want to be careful with this one. I want to like give somebody that I really mean. Um, I said Mitch Hedberg already, right? Yep. Let's see. Um, that's a pretty good list. You could end there if you want. Well, that's I don't like, want to put you on the spot. I think that's four, though. 
I mean, I love Carlin. I didn't want to say Carlin because I feel like it's the it's the mm. it's the goes without. It's like saying Beatles is your favorite band, right. but I do love Carlin, which so I which I do all the Carlin, time. Yeah, Carlin Hedberg, Teresa Neal, uh, Tignataro. And then I think Segura is hilarious. By the way, if you want to listen to a funny podcast, if you haven't already, it's called Tig and Cheryl's True Story. It's Cheryl Hines, who's a friend of mine, and Tig Notaro. And they literally talk about documentaries. But the fun part of it is, is that the two of them just riff for like 98% of the time and only talk about the actual documentary about 2% of the time. So it's so much fun listening to them just talk about nonsense, which is hilarious. And then see what couple of minutes they get uh, to talk about the doc. But uh, I want to thank you again for coming on here. You've been amazing. As uh, we Jews often say, you're a mensch. Um, And uh, I appreciate you... uh, taking the time uh and i do want to mention to your fans that phineas did say he's lying in bed in the dark right now doing this so you guys can do with that whatever you, whatever you, whatever you wish and we're going to end on that note phineas you're great thanks again man thanks Andy. i'm gonna go to sleep it's midnight um thanks again for your time take care Hope you have a wonderful friday you too take, take care, care. bye so there you have it episode 17 in the can we'd love to hear your thoughts so leave us a message at 845-307-7446 or email us at backroomandy at gmail.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Andy Ostroyd. Thank you to my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg, our Jane of all trades, Jan Hamoud, Cricket Langell for our cool logo and design, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wind and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you to our awesome guest, Phineas. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards. And we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.